Lord, we invite you to speak to us today. Give us ears that hear and a heart that is ready to receive. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, I remember the times very vividly when I was a boy growing up in Egypt. I so enjoyed playing with my Israelite friends. And, and even though I was Egyptian, our families still met together and we would eat at one another's table. And we'd have great fellowship with one another. We would speak often of spiritual things and they would talk about the, the stories of old and their patriarchs. They reminded me of, the, of Joseph and how he came and he saved our land and all the lands around us simply because he followed the wisdom of their God. I grew into manhood still having those wonderful friendships with my Israelite friends. I cherished them especially my friendship with one particular Israelite, Moses. Moses was a wonderful friend. And then we got a new Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh didn't remember the things of Joseph, nor did he care. And he oppressed the Israelite people, and I saw many of my friends being harmed and wounded at his hand. I felt so compassionate for my friends that I brought many of them into my home and I hired them as servants and just to, just to protect them because I didn't want them to go through the suffering that many others did. And then my friend Moses came back into town and he had confrontations with Pharaoh. And as he was there, he would he would show these signs and wonders that I'd, I'd never seen before. These plagues would come because of his words that he came and he spoke coming from their God. There were, there were gnats and flies and frogs and locusts and there were boils and hail that fell from the sky and stripped all of the land of our food. And then there was this darkness, this, this darkness that was so terrible that you couldn't see, so ominous that you felt it. It was all on you and around you. I'd never seen such power in all of my life, and I never saw this kind of power coming from any God that I studied when I was growing up. You know, Moses he told me that their God is going to deliver them from Egypt. and They're going to go into the wilderness and worship him. You know, I, I think that, no, we will join them and go into the wilderness as well and serve their God. My only prayer is that Pharaoh would listen to Moses and heed the words of their God and let the people go. I, I can't bear to see my other brothers and my other Egyptian sisters experience another plague. Why would he want to? Why can't he just see that the God of the Israels, the, that, 
he's God, that he's real, that there is no other God but him. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 12 that when the children of Israel did leave, that many others went with them that were not Israelites. We believe that even Egyptians, after the demonstration of the plagues, much like Tommy depicted here, believed and followed the God of the Israelites, Yahweh God. The title of the sermon this morning is, Who is the Lord? That's the exact question that Pharaoh asked in chapter 5 of Exodus verse 2. When Moses comes before Pharaoh and he says, Who is the Lord? Who is this God that you are speaking of that I should obey Him? You see, there are many gods in Egypt and He's not one of the ones that we choose to worship. Matter of fact, I myself am a God. And on some level, I control many of the other gods. And I don't know your God. Why would I want to listen? I'm a God myself. Why would I want to listen to you? It's a question that people still ask today. Who is God? And why should we listen to Him? And by the way, why did He send those plagues? You know, that's exactly why I don't like the Bible. That's exactly why I reject Christianity and the God of the Bible because of things like that. Because of those plagues. And because of this a loving God supposedly who would bring judgment on people. The truth of it is, is this, is that because He is loving, He sometimes exercises judgment. That's what we're going to talk about today. I couldn't put it out on the marquee because it's not a real popular subject, uh, the judgment of God, but also in the judgment of God, the salvation of God. You know, A.W. Tozer says the single most important thing about us is what we believe about God, how we think about God and who He is. That's a pretty deep well. But I want us to stop and to think about it this morning. Who is God? Well, there's the simple answer. He's the one true God we learned last week, objectively and independently above what we think. The human thoughts that we have, the ideals that we have about how God should act and how He should perform. We also believe as Christians that He is the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, a personal and covenant-keeping Creator, the sustainer of everything who will always be here and for the believer always be with us. That may be who He is, and it's obviously much deeper and richer than that, but what is He doing in this book? This book of Exodus, this book of which so much time is spent developing these ten plagues and the release of the children of Israel who had been in bondage and slavery for 400 years and whose cries God had heard and He had a covenant with them and He decides to draw them out. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in chapter 7 of the book of Exodus, verse 4 and 5, the Bible says here, it says, speaking of Pharaoh, he will not listen to you. 
And then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with the mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. They will know, much like the character that was depicted, they will know and they will understand who the true and living God is. And they might be able to benefit from the salvation of the Lord. You see, we live in a world today that really struggles with the concept of sin. It's not a popular word, as we've talked about before. Uh, There are even ministers today who don't use that word because it doesn't have a real positive connotation. But part of that is because we disunderstand what sin is. Ultimately, sin is this. It's the death of mankind. It's the disintegration of man and earth. That's ultimately what sin is. Now, what do I mean by that? This is what I mean by that. Is that everything that God has given us in Scripture, every directive, every command, is for the purpose of of ceasing or helping for us to cease from dying. Even though it's inevitable, there are other ways that we die other than just physically. So when God says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. In fact, what he is saying is, you know what? When you steal, when you lie, when you covet, there's a part of you that dies psychologically, emotionally, and socially. You die. It even has physical ramifications in your life. And I know how you were created. I know the very fabric of the earth because I created everything. And I know that when you violate my principles, when you violate the principle of creation, that you begin to destroy yourself. You begin to disintegrate. So that's why I want you not to lie, not just because it's an arbitrary rule that I came up with, but because it hurts you. I have forbidden adultery because it tears at the very fabric of who you are and the institution of marriage that I've created for you to enjoy. I don't want you to kill because I have created life. And when you kill others, when you murder, you disintegrate. You cheapen life and you cheapen yourself. So sin psychologically affects us, it socially affects us, it emotionally affects us, and it even physically affects us. It's the disintegration of mankind. And God understands this. And because of that, He wants to help us. He's told us in His Word that the wages of sin is death. He means that literally. Oh, you might not die in an instance, but the death process is accelerated in every facet of your life. And so God wants to protect us from sin. Do you understand that's the reason he gave us the book of Leviticus? When he wrote the book of Leviticus, we look at that now and we just go, how absurd. But have you ever stopped to think about it this way? The book of Leviticus that was given, uh, the instructions were given well over 3,500 years ago. These instructions were given. And at that time, they didn't understand health and hygiene They didn't understand cholesterol and triglycerides. 
And here's a medical journal, so to speak, that's given to people who have no concept of modern germs and bacteria. And God institutes these rituals of purification that no other culture was observing. And it seems so obscure. And he said, I want you to be a holy people. But also, he lessened the power of disease. He lessened the power of of um, affliction that would come that no one else could have understood at the time. Their diets were better and more healthy at the time before there was any kind of modern medicine to combat those issues. And God gave this to them, and it made it seem obscure, and it totally looked ridiculous to the other people of that day. And even today we look at that, and what in the world was all that about? And yet God was using it to preserve his people. You see, God doesn't make arbitrary laws and statements. They all have to do with giving us life and giving it to us abundantly. And when we violate that principle, life starts to have less meaning and death begins to occur within our very nature. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship idols. It's because that's not the purpose for which we were created. It's a false god. It psychologically and emotionally is unfulfilling and cheapens who we are and lessens our faith and our confidence in God Himself. It's all for our benefit. That's why God brings about judgment upon people to save them. He exercises this judgment, these plagues, for the purpose of salvation. Now, I want to tell you right up front, I am going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to take for granted that you know the story of Moses and the ten plagues. If not, I want to, I want to encourage you to read it. If you won't read it, at least go get the Ten Commandments and watch it, okay? So I'm going to take it for granted that most every person here has heard the story of how Moses was spoken to by God, and God told Moses to go and deliver the children of Israel. And because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, there are plagues. There are ten plagues that come, and they continue to occur because uh, Pharaoh is unwilling to release the children of Israel. So I'm going to take it for granted you know that. If not, I'd be happy to share that story with you this week. Or better, better yet, start chapter 3 and just read till about chapter 12, and you'll get the whole story. Uh, so, great story. You need to read it. Now, I'm going to take it for granted that, that you know that. Now, as we look at these plagues, we've already talked about who God is and what he's doing. He is actually exercising judgment for the purpose of salvation. Certainly salvation for the nation of Israel, which he has had a covenant, which he has a covenant with, but also the salvation of Egyptian and other people groups who have been sucked into that polytheistic mentality of multiple gods, the God of the Nile and the God of the frogs and, and the God of the flies. Matter of fact, the plagues, and I have some papers there for you to take home and look at and to read, actually were in response to each one of those pagan deities. That's what the plagues were for. They were a response to these pagan gods. And you can read about that in those papers that I have for you when you go home. But God was judging. He was bringing judgment upon the false gods because people were following them. And through this process, 
Egyptians and other people groups, and certainly the Israelites, come to know the true and living God. So even in his judgment, he's exercising mercy. He's extending salvation to all who would come. Many scholars, as a matter of fact, believe that what's occurring right here with the ten plagues is the unraveling of Genesis 1. If you go back and you read the book of Genesis, particularly the first chapter, you see how God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, the earth was formless and void and dark. But God creates the heavens and earth. He creates light. He creates vegetation and animal life. He creates water. And many scholars say what's happening with these plagues is God is taking his hand off creation and allowing it to unravel. So we know who God is. We somewhat understand what he's doing. And the question is now, how is he doing it? When it comes to the plagues, I mean, we've all heard different things about the plagues, haven't we? I mean, many people still today will even say, I think that's just a myth. I don't think that ever happened. That was a story. That was a good movie. You know what's interesting? The end of the 19th century, the first of the 20th century, and again, I've, I've given you a document you can look at at home. They found an Egyptian papyrus. And in that papyrus, you know what they found out? They found out that a lot of these recordings, and this has this is a totally non-Jewish, non-Christian writing, okay? This was ancient Egyptian writings that they found uh, from somewhere after the time of, of Moses. And again, that's all documented for you there. And you know what they found? They found it was remarkable. Some of the recorded history was much like it was in Exodus. Oh, my goodness. And now these archaeologists have found historical documents that found out that these disasters occurred. You know what happened last year in science? Matter of fact, I just have a little piece of the article, and you can get the rest of it and look it up. That scientists have discovered, you know, that there's some kind of natural disasters. There were some type of plagues that happened during that time of history in Egypt. We don't understand exactly what happened, but scientifically, here's some things we know. We know that some disasters came about. As a matter of fact, we also know that there was a large group of people that just got up and left. Now, none of them are Christians, and they're not even saying, they're going, you know, what probably happened, some of them are saying, probably happened was that the Jews heard about this and they recorded it as their history. That's what they probably did. They probably knew of that, and then they just recorded it. Even though for about 2,000 years, you know, scientists and certainly archaeologists said, that's a big myth, it never happened. Well, now they have to admit it happened. I mean, you're really ignorant to say it didn't happen, because you've got the science community and archaeologists that, well, well something happened. So now we have to understand it. Well, they were just natural disasters. And it just kind of happened, you know, all together. It was just real bad luck. It's a bad year in Egypt, I tell you. And uh, <clears throat> that just kind of all happened. And you know what I tell you? I'll tell you the first nine. You could probably, uh, I think it's fair to say that God used some natural causes to make some uh, disasters happen. You, I can buy that. Uh, we know that the blood, it could have been blood, but we also know that in Joel and also in the book of Revelation, when the Bible talks about blood, that it's using it uh, in an illustrative manner. Uh, we know that the moon will be turned to blood. We, we understand uh, that hyperbole is being used or a metaphor is being used there. So that's possible. It could have been red silk that caused all the fish to die, that called the frogs. By the way, they worship the Nile because that was the giver of all life. And then there was the, the frog god 
who had the, the, the female goddess that had a head of a frog and the body of a woman. It was the fertility god. It was the, the birth god. And then we see the insects, the god of the flies. And again, I have some papers there that kind of go through those with you. And you see how each of those occur. But it's not so amazing that maybe the frogs came out when it got polluted or that insects came out. That's very natural. And we see God using natural events all throughout history to make himself known and to make his purposes occur. We see Jesus healing people uh, that are lame, that are sick, that are blind, that are deaf, uh, that are mute, that have diseases. He heals them and he resets them. He stops the disintegration process and he brings them back to life. But what makes these these miracles are, are at least three different reasons. First of all, the intensification. How it intensifies. How they start off uh, and they just kind of build upon one another. And if that's not enough, here's, the, here's a big one. The prediction. Moses goes and he says, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen if you don't let my children go, if you don't let my people go. And then it happens. That one's got a hard one to get around, don't you think? That right there shows the miracle component. God may use some natural means, but what are the odds that somebody's going to get 10 out of 10? Well, first of all, this whole Nile thing's going to turn to blood. Then frogs are going to come out. Then the, you know, then the lice are going to come out. Then the gnats. And, and I mean, just so forth and forth. And he keeps telling them, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen the next day. It's going to happen if you don't release my people. And if that's not enough, after the third plague, you know what happens? We see discrimination. What do I mean by discrimination? All of a sudden, the Jews aren't experiencing any of the plagues, even though they're right outside the city gates of the Egyptians. It would be equivalent to, you know, we're experiencing all this in Flower Mound, but Louisville, nothing's happening. Sun's still shining. It's dark over here. <laughs> Hailstorm's coming. Nothing over here. I mean, they're getting pounded. They were getting pounded over here. I mean, you would stop and think, I'm moving to Louisville or something's wrong here. You know what I mean? And many of the people thought that. So we see not only the prediction, but the discrimination. We see that it's not happening to the Jews, but it is happening to the Egyptians. We see the orderliness. It's in order and it goes in the order and it goes in its intensity, just as Moses describes because it's for divine purpose. And it's interesting, a lot of the scholars, they'll go back and they can say, now, each one of those were a natural cause. What about the tenth one, you know, where uh, the oldest child, uh, old son, would, would die? And one of most said, well, we can't really explain that one. One guy said, well, I can explain that one. Here's what happened. He goes, well, what happened on that one is because all the food gotten contaminated and because the first child was considered the favorite child, you would have fed them first. They certainly fed all their first child, and that's why they all died, because they had the contaminated food. I'm thinking, well, what did others eat? Uh, but it's, it's just amazing how sometimes we'll try to go to great lengths to try to explain the hand of God. But we see who God is. We see what he's doing and how he's doing it. And what also is interesting is why he's doing it. He's doing it to demonstrate his power and his existence. Let's look at several passages of Scripture that let us know why God is doing what he's doing. Let's start with Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to read through several. Exodus 3, 19. 3, 19, the Bible says this, But I know that the king will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all wonders that I perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. 
In chapter 7, verse 8, the Bible says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and let it become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. And Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and Egyptians and magicians and also did the same things by their secret arts. And each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up the other snaps, the staffs or the snakes. And yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them. Just as the Lord had said, uh, you know, what's interesting. You know what the symbol for the Pharaoh and the symbol for the power was? It was the cobra. Matter of fact, he would wear a, he would wear a crown type hat, if you want to call that. And even King Tut, when we found King Tut, he had the same thing. It's, it's a, a cobra wrapped around his head, ready to strike. And so most scholars think this was probably a cobra. What's interesting is they throw that down. Their symbol of power, their national symbol, the national symbol of the Pharaoh. And what happens? Moses' snake eats those snakes. It was a picture of, you think that this is the power. You think that this is the authority. But God Almighty, Yahweh God, is the true and living God. In 8.19, the Bible says, And the magician said to Pharaoh, after the plague of the gnats, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord said. The magicians and his officials began to see this is the hand of the true God. And then in chapter 9, verse 13, one of the most prolific passages of us understanding why God is doing this, how God is doing this, and what is occurring. In chapter 9, beginning with verse 13, the Bible tells us then... Moses said that God said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. And you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. God's saying, I could have simply wiped you out. I could have completely killed off the Egyptian culture, but I've not. I've given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But I have raised you up for this purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God demonstrates his power of existence and God also does this, sends these plagues as saving judgment, not just for the Hebrews, but for the Egyptians and for all the other people groups. And we know from chapter 12, let's go ahead and read this passage from chapter 12, verse 38. That is exactly many that were like the depiction that Tommy gave earlier. Many other people went with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. It wasn't just the Israelites that left, but many others went with them. God, even through his judgment, is exercising mercy so that others might see that he is the Lord thy God. 
and that they might know the salvation of the Lord. And through these events, many recognize our Egyptian gods. They have done nothing. It has only gotten worse. But yet the God of Israel, the one that they call the Lord God, everything Moses has said has occurred. Why would we not go and worship him? And not only that, but God is foreshadowing the judgment. The judgment that will come in the final analysis. When this earth will disintegrate into nothing. And the new heavens and the new earth will come about. We see it in the book of Revelation, chapter 16. We see a foreshadowing of this. These plagues are a foreshadowing of the final judgment that will come. In Revelation chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. In Revelation 16, 2 through 21, I will just read a few of these verses. But I want you to see what the Bible says here. The first angel went out and he poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people that had the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. We see, first of all, uh, the boils and the sores. We see the sickness of mankind. And in verse 3 and 4, here in Revelation, the Bible says in chapter 16, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood, like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out the bowl on the rivers and springs of water, And they became his blood. And in verse 10, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 16, Then the fifth angel poured out a bowl on the throne of the beast and the kingdom and was plunged into darkness. We see the plague of darkness. And then the seventh bowl in chapter 16, verse 21, And from the sky, huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. The judgment of God. So what do we see here? We see that the wages of sin is death. And it's not death because God is seeking to punish. It is just like an alcoholic or a drug addict who doesn't understand that the continual consumption of that substance is literally killing them. They can't see it. They don't feel it necessarily. And so they keep on. And outside people look and they see how it's destroying their family, how it's destroying their home, it's destroying their job, it's destroying their relationships, it's destroying their health. But they just can't see it because they're in it. And that same perspective is true of us. We don't see how sin is destroying us, causing us to disintegrate, but God does. And so he gives us directives, he gives us commands to prevent or to lessen that sin and destruction in our lives. But ultimately, we live in a fallen world where sin and death will occur. Not only in our mortal bodies, but in the earth itself. And one day, the destruction will be final. But here's the good news. 
God is going to make everything new. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And when the Bible typically speaks of new heaven and new earth, he's not talking about really two different places. He's talking about the earth itself. And most of the biblical writers would understand the first heaven as the heaven as the skies. And he's going to create a new universe, a new earth. Let's read about that in Revelation chapter 21, where all things are redeemed. All things are made new. In Revelation chapter 21, beginning with the first verse. For the believer in Christ, this is what we're promised. We don't have to dread the future. There is hope for the future. It will be life as we always dreamed, as we always wished. No sin, no pain, no suffering. All is right socially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and psychologically. It's all right. The Bible says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Everything is it supposed to be. With the absence of sin, there will be no disintegration. There will be no death. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That is the life and the world that God intends for all who will recognize that who is the Lord? He is the God of the universe. He is the pure and holy God who provides salvation for all that will come. Who does not want to see us destroy ourselves. And who intervenes in order to protect us and to save us from ourselves and to save us from sin. Who has created, who will create a new heaven and a new earth so that we might dwell at peace with Him without sin, without pain, without suffering, without disaster. Which frankly we have brought upon ourselves from the way we've treated our bodies and the way we've treated the earth. But one day it will all be redeemed and all things will be made new. Do you know Him? Have you trusted Him? Are you ready to experience the judgment of God? Because if we know Christ, that judgment has been placed upon Him. There's one who has died in our place and taken the judgment upon Him through death upon the cross so that we might know the new life, the full life, the intended life that God has for us. Do you know Him? Have you trusted Him? Have you recognized your sin and said, God... I believe in you. I'm tired of making up these gods in my mind of what I think you ought to be and how you should act and how you should respond. And I recognize that you are true and living. Come into my life and forgive me my sins and save me. I commit myself to you. If you've not done that, I want to invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you for creating a new heaven and a new earth. Thank you, God, that you have... Lord, put in place 
the opportunity for us to live the life that we always desired. To have the utmost for your highest. To experience life in its absolute fullness. And Lord, until we get to you, into that time, Lord, you want us to experience life on this earth the best that we can. And that starts with understanding your forgiveness and in living your life, in living through your principles. Lord, you don't want us to be hindered by sin, controlled by sin, and to be killed by sin. You want us, Lord, to understand the freedom that you have. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone today who has not trusted, they'd come to know you. Lord, for those who are believers who find themselves listening to the message of our culture that says, be your own God. How could a God of love and mercy ever bring judgment? Lord, let us refute that and recognize it's because of your love and mercy that you must judge sin. Otherwise, we destroy and kill ourselves and destroy our nations and our culture and our world because of our greed, because of our covetousness, because of that sickness of sin that desires to destroy and to murder and to steal and to kill. I pray, Lord, that you would deliver us this day from the bondage of sin and by welcoming in that great salvation you have offered. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.